Hi, my name is Kyle Bomstead and I'm a member here with Restored Church. Uh, if you're new, we want to say welcome and thank you for tuning in. Uh, we believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we would love the opportunity to be able to connect with you. Uh, if you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website at restoredtemecula.church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. Uh, with all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. It's good to be with you guys this morning. I see you, Sonny. Loving you, buddy. <laughs> nice beard, bro. You still, you're still winning. Uh, guys, I'm excited for this morning for multiple reasons. We are going to be continuing on in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And kind of the framework that we're using for this series is it, goes, it, it correlates with the title of this series. We've titled it The King and His Kingdom. And what we want to do is we've been going through Matthew, but we want to go through Matthew with an agenda. And the agenda is to learn as much as we can about the King of all things, the King of Kings, Jesus, and His kingdom, what His kingdom is like. Now, when I say the kingdom, I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. Those two phrases are used synonymously. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the rule and reign of the king. Jesus, right? It's, it's when Jesus gets his way. God's rule, God's reign, God's ways. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom. And if you look at the planet, there's all these opposing wills, if you, if you will. Like desires, and you have all, like, it's, like a, it's like a battleground where there's your will versus my will versus their will versus his will versus her will, and they're just kind of this like battleground of opposing wills. We want to discover and learn as much as we can about what the will of God on the earth looks like, the kingdom of heaven. Um, <clears throat> many of you know, let me start my counter, my, my clock. Many of you know uh, a handful of us were in Africa about a month ago-ish. Uh, a few weeks ago. And it really was an incredibly fruitful time. We used to go at least once a year prior to COVID. COVID kind of shifted a bunch. Since then, um, Durban, South Africa, where our sister church, Harbor City, is at, has just been through so much. And so our, my first time back since pre-COVID was about a month ago. And, and the trip was so, it was really fruitful, guys. It was really, really fruitful. There was a lot of beautiful things that happened, but probably the most I don't know, probably the best thing that happened was on a Saturday evening, we were retreating together, their whole church was together, and we just had a profound encounter with the Lord. I mean, it was, I think I've told this story already, it was amazing, like, we kind of soft-closed the gathering after they had been worshiping and praising God for about an hour, and they kept going for like another three hours. It was, un I went to bed, and they were still praising God. It was unbelievable. It was so beautiful. But I think the most beautiful um, part of the whole trip was another thing that happened that Saturday night, and that was that two different women that had been journeying with this church for a fairly significant amount of time, they had like a conversion moment. And when I say conversion moment, I mean they converted. They full on went like, I want Jesus with all of me. That's it. I'm not like one foot in, one foot out. I'm like, I want to be a Christian. Like, I'm giving my life to Jesus completely. It was amazing. 
And typically in those kind of environments where it's like a church retreat, you don't typically see that. You typically see people who are giving up their time and their resources to get away as being people who are like, they're not just kind of beginning their journey of following Jesus. They're like, they're already making sacrifices and those kinds of things. But we saw these two beautiful conversion moments take place on that Saturday night. And it was amazing. These two women had this beautiful encounter with Jesus. They yielded their life to him. The, the, the whole church came around them and blessed them and loved them. And it was just another catalytic moment of gratitude filling that room. And when I say gratitude, I mean gratitude to Jesus. It was awesome. Conversion moments are really special. They're not the, the highlight of your life, but they're really, really, really special. Many of you in the room, you've had the, like a conversion moment where you've like, I was, maybe it was in a Sunday gathering somewhere or just like an encounter with the spirit of God in a profoundly personal way. And, and, and it's like before that, you operated one way and then after that, it's just like, I'm different. The Bible describes this as the new birth, being born again, being converted. It's a, it's a really beautiful, special thing. And I know many of you have experienced that. Consider for a moment. Maybe, maybe you haven't had a conversion moment. Maybe this morning might be your morning. Cool. In our passage today that we're going to go through, it's going to cover a little bit of Matthew, the author of this gospel account. It's going to cover his conversion moment. And his conversion moment in this passage, it's only a handful of verses but there's some profoundly beautiful, amazing things attached to it. That's what I want to go through this morning. So go to grab your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. I'll be in the Christian Standard Bible translation. If you don't have that one, we'll have the words on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, before I jump into God's word, I want to pray for us. And I want to set up our time, I want to pray, and I want to pray for something specifically, but before I do, I want to just acknowledge something that I'm sensing in the room. I don't think it's everybody, but I think it's a lot of us. And I'm sensing a bit of like a corporate distraction. A corporate distraction. And what I mean by that is there's a plethora of things that kind of come our way just to throw our focus just even a little bit off of Jesus, off of his glory, off of his worth, off of his beauty, off of his presence through his spirit with us right now. And so I'm going to pray for our time, but I'm going to direct my prayers for us that some of these corporate distractions would be gone so that we can see him more clearly. That's the goal. The goal is to see him more clearly. If we see him more clearly, oh, that's what it's all about. Let me pray for us. Very simply, Father, we come before you. We recognize your presence with us. And I, I just feel an invitation for us this morning, an invitation into more. I feel like a dissatisfaction rising up in my spirit this morning, like I'm not content with just a little bit of you. I want more. I want more for me. I want more for my household. I want more for our church family. And so I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to identify for each one of us the things that maybe are distracting us, that are, that are kind of pulling our attention away from Jesus, even ever so slightly. 
Would you help us become aware of that right now? And I pray that you'd captivate us with the glory and beauty of Jesus, Holy Spirit. You love to do that. Show us Jesus. Show us Jesus, we pray. Help me to honor and serve my brothers and sisters in this room. I don't want to do anything that gets in the way of what you want to do. So help us. We love you. And we pray together. And all all God's people said, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. We're going to go through verse 13. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to unpack some stuff. It says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. One verse, Matthew's conversion right there. Verse 10. While Jesus, the he, there's Jesus. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, this is, uh, this is one of those passages where we could do seven preaches on. Seven different messages here. I'm gonna try to do my best, but my first point this morning, if you're taking notes, write this one down. Jesus models join me leadership. Join me. That's Jesus' leadership mantra. Join me. He models join me leadership, okay? So I want you to picture this. You have Matthew, right? He's doing his thing at the tax office. And Jesus approaches him amongst the kind of, you know, the scenario that's breaking down, that's happening. And he says, follow me. Now, that word follow, you guys know this. It's originally written in Greek, translated into English. That's our New Testament. That word follow me, it's the Greek word okolithio. Okolithio. I always butcher it. Okolithio. There it is. What that word okolithio means is it means to follow or accompany. But not to just follow or accompany. It means to follow or accompany someone who takes the lead in determining the direction or the route of movement. To follow or accompany a leader. Anybody ever had a terrible boss? Wow, a lot of you. Passionate. Whoa! You notice how Mark, who's on our staff, was like, yep. <laughs> Love you too. <laughs> I know you didn't read that. Present company, excuse me. Okay, listen. <laughs> leadership is hard. All right, we can all throw stones at people that we've been under their leadership because, you know, nobody's perfect. People are human. But I've had, I've had a handful of rough bosses. There was one, this is maybe 20 years ago. There was one guy who... He would, his whole, it's actually, on, on paper, it wasn't bad, but his whole thing was like, hey, we're in this together. He's my direct supervisor. We're in this together. We've got to trust each other. We've got to trust each other. We're in this together. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely. Like a, like a relational partnership collaboration between a subordinate and their boss. Like, yeah, absolutely. I'm, in a, I'm, I'm on board, right? And over time, you got to kind of like feel out how much can I trust this person, and there's wisdom in that. And I remember we, we would do these one-on-one meetings probably twice a week. 
and these one-on-one meetings would eventually turn into him, him criticizing like senior leadership, so his bosses. And after a while, it was kind of like, and to be honest, it was, it was kind of an environment where that was easy to do, you know? And, and I remember him, he, he would criticize, he would criticize, he would criticize. And each time that he would criticize, he would then follow that up with like fishing for my criticism. And over time, as I began to trust him more, because again, the whole, his, whole, his whole kind of mantra was like, we're in this together, we've got to trust each other. And he'd fish for my criticism, and over time, I would, I would give, I'd give some more of my criticisms of his boss, and essentially my boss's boss, right? And what happened on multiple occasions is like whenever I would do that, it would be like, no more than like a couple hours later to where I would get called into his boss's office. And then the conversation would go something along the lines of this. Did you say this about our senior leadership? And if you've ever been in that position where you've been caught kind of gossiping or speaking poorly about someone, it's a really funky place to be. The temptation to lie is just like off the charts, at least for people like me who like genuinely struggle battling sin and wanting to protect my reputation. And I don't know, no, none of you would ever do anything like that. You guys are so holy and blameless. But I remember this happened twice. And I remember leaving that office going, my boss is the biggest hypocrite. We've got to trust each other. We're in this together. And then, but, but how, he would, how he would model his leadership was do as I say, but not as I do. You ever experienced that kind of a dynamic between maybe someone that you are reporting to? It's not fun. It's not fun. And I think probably the thing that is the least fun about it for me is that I'm just as guilty. Like I do this in my life, even in my leadership. Like, this is probably, I don't know, two months ago, my daughters are kind of quarreling and they're, and they're like shouting at each other. And I'm like, stop shouting at your sister. And then I said it and I was like, oh, I'm doing the same thing that I'm getting upset at them for doing. Like, it's hypocrisy. I'm just as guilty. Hear me. Jesus never leads this way. Jesus, he never leads this way. His leadership style is not like, stop it or start it. Like, that's not, the, that's not the way he operates. That's not how he leads. What he does, what he says is, join me. Come and join me. Come do as I do. It's not a like, do as I say, not as I do. It's a, come join me. Come do as I do. Jesus always leads by example. And guys, listen to me. That style of leadership is by far the most effective style of leadership that there is. Join me, leadership. Now, listen, every single person in the room, all of us, regardless of your age, regardless of your stage of life, in some way, shape, or form, you, in different environments, take on the role of leader. In, in our American culture, 
it's such this like elevated, exalted thing, like you're a leader, you're a leader, you're a leader, because we have this like hierarchical view of society and we love feeling better about ourselves than other people. And again, you would never think that, but people like me do sometimes. But, but he, hear what I'm trying to say to you. Every single one of us, to some degree or another, is a leader in this room. And when I say leader, when, I, when I'm referring to leadership, what I mean by that is, is this, this idea of, of having influence and taking responsibility. That's what leadership is. Having influence, that means people follow you, and taking responsibility. That's what I mean when I say leadership. And so, again, every single one of you in some way, shape, or form, has influence over certain people and takes responsibility in some of those environments. And so, just before we kind of dig into flesh this passage out a little more, I want us to get a pulse on ourselves. And so I want to frame it with this, asking you a question. What would other people say that your leadership style is? There's really not to get too black and white here, but there's really kind of two. What would other people say your leadership style is? What would your coworkers say? What would your kids say? What would your spouse say? What would they say your leadership style? Is it, is it, is it join me leadership? Or is it hypocritical leadership? Do as I say, but when it comes to doing what I do and doing as I do, nah. Uh, parents in the room, honest question. It's gonna sound on the, I'm gonna, uh, the question I'm about to ask you on the surface might sound like absolutely, of course I do, but sit with this one for a second. Do you want your children to grow up to love and serve Jesus? What I'm not asking you is I'm not asking if you want them to grow up to like have Jesus kind of be an accessory in their life that can help them at certain times. I'm not asking if you want them to grow up to like come to a Sunday gathering twice a month or to maybe like participate in some areas of service or maybe like, you know, know some things about the Bible but like live their own way but like they can access Jesus when they need help. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, do you want your children to grow up to love and to serve Jesus? Like, to walk in the fullness of who God's created them to be. Listen, if you do, the chances of that actually happening, they go way up when you practice join me leadership. I mean, they, they, like it's exponential. If you look at the graph, it's like the line goes, whoop. The chances of that go way up when you and I, when we practice join me leadership. So what I mean by that is like, you want your kid to, to kind of know what the word of God says? You don't just send them to Dorian or Tracy or their team. Hey, join me. Let's read the scriptures together. You want your kids to develop a healthy dependence on God in a, in a, in a, in a lifestyle of abiding like Jesus talks about. Like this like stay with me, remain with me, this friendship with God. Prayer is more than just a conversation. Prayer, biblically, is engaging with God. It's, it's, it's the opportunity for unbroken fellowship. So 
there's a difference between like encouraging your kids to experience that versus, hey, join me. Join me in the prayer room. Join me in, in, in expressing our priestly identity of orienting our life around, around blessing God not to get something from him, but just because he's so worthy and wonderful and good and kind and faithful. Or, or, or you want your kid to grow in like their identity as a servant, like that they shouldn't just live their life with, with, with them at the center, but actually seek out what's best for the, the benefit of other people. That's what love is. Like it's living for, it's acting in the benefit of, of another so, so we're going we're gonna to serve a need in the church on a Sunday or outside of a Sunday. It's just a practical need in our gospel community. Join me. Join me in this. You want a kid to develop generosity, not just with money, but with time and other resources. Come join me. I'm telling you, friends, as someone who has like, failed at this time and time again, there's no better style of leadership than the leadership of Jesus. And Jesus' leadership style is, join me. Join me. Gentlemen, can I just talk to the men in the room for just a minute? There's a uniqueness, there's a distinction between men and women. Can we all agree? Yes. Can I get an amen, please? Thank you. There's a distinction, both equal in the eyes of God, both priceless in value, but there's a distinction, okay? You know how, you know how uh, let's just use this example. At the end of our gatherings, probably the last 20-ish minutes of our gatherings, what do we typically do after the message? We typically, we, we typically respond to God's gospel, to who he is, to what he's doing, to what he's saying to us through his scriptures, to the things that are going on in our lives. And we respond in two different ways. We talk about responding as priests and responding as patients, like patients in a hospital, right? Priests who are praising God in response to his goodness and his faithfulness and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. And people who are operating as patients, like I need care. I need the intervention of the great physician. I, I need God to guide me, lead me, touch my life because I'm, I'm struggling in this area or I'm falling short in this area. You know what sin means? It means to miss the mark. We miss the mark so often in, in our life if we're honest with ourselves. But Jesus is abounding in grace, faithful love. Men, when we come to that time of our gatherings, I have a question for you. When people come forward for prayer, why is it a disproportionate number of women that come forward? Is it because women are more needy than men? I don't think so. You could make the argument that men, biblically, are more needy of God than women are because women were created to help and that word help might sound derogatory. God refers to himself as the helper. It's not derogatory. It means there's a void. There's a void in men that only you can fix. So you can make the biblical case that men are actually more needy yet. Why? In our body. And this is, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to um, slam you right now. I'm asking questions because I think that God's in this for us. Why does a disproportionate number of women come forward for prayer and men don't? Or, or when we praise, when, we, when we, we praise God, 
Why are her hands lifted in the air and your hands are in your pockets? And listen, not every man. Do you, do you know why I sit over here? I sit over here because I want to watch what God's doing in the room. This isn't, an, this isn't like a production. We're not putting on a production. We're trying to ride a wave. We're trying to position ourselves as a community and as individuals where we can experience the transforming presence of Almighty God. Men, I'm going to be real with you. I've been in full-time vocational ministry for almost 20 years. I've never seen a group of men with as much potential as there are in this room right now. I'm not joking. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not blowing smoke. You guys are an incredible community of men. Unbelievable. Please understand what I'm trying to say to you. How you express your faith matters. It matters because whether you like it or not, you are leading. I can't speak for you, but that humbles me because there's so many areas in my life where I'm not leading like Jesus does. Join me. Join me. I'm leading by example because my faith is in my Father and his work. Jesus models, join me leadership. He leads by example and it is the best leadership style there is. And it can be applied anywhere and everywhere. Not just in the church, in ministry. It can be applied in marriages. It can be applied in your job. It can be applied in your household. You gospel, those of you in gospel community, it can be applied in your gospel communities. Nobody can stop you from leading. Nobody can stop you from stepping into a space where I'm gonna, I'm gonna take responsibility and, I'm gonna, and I have influence. No one can stop that. It doesn't require a role, a position, a title. That's why they got so angry with Jesus because he showed up and he's like, I'm doing the will of my father whether you like it or not. Come and join me. Men, I've never seen a room with the potential I see here. Join me. Jesus models join me leadership. Imagine if we did that. Imagine if we lived the same way Jesus did. Not just men, but women too. Ladies, I want to acknowledge the, 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 the many ways that you lead this community in healthy, beautiful ways. Bless you. It's amazing. Men, you do too. But I know, I believe God has more for us and more for those we're called to love and lead and serve. Join me, leadership. That's the essence of the call to discipleship, not just for Matthew, but for you and for me. Let's, let's keep going. Look at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. Uh, tax office, basically what that is, don't think like, you know, H&R Block. Think like a small little booth where, where, where taxes would be collected, where, where different people would come forward and they would pay their taxes, right? And you notice it said that Matthew was sitting there. That means he's the one that's collecting the taxes. And if you study the Bible, all you know, Matthew was a tax collector, and many of you know what a tax collector is. Many of you probably don't know what a tax collector is. And I don't just mean like an IRS agent, all right? A tax collector was something different. 
Some, well, not something different. It was, it was much more than just like a collector of taxes in this context with this people group 2,000 years ago, okay? I'm going to try to explain this really, really quickly. Rome, the world superpower at the time, the Roman Empire, they had occupied the, 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 the region around Jerusalem, which is where all these Jewish people were at, right? So they're occupying, they've invaded, they've taken over, and they're like, hey, you can keep doing your Jewish thing, but you're going to do it under our guidelines. Essentially, you're going to pay us taxes and you're going to not do what we don't want you to do, but you can still kind of keep your customs and you know, your lifestyle, whatever. And so from that, they would, they would tax these Jewish people, not just Jews, but other parts of the world too. They would tax heavily. I think all of us are like, gosh, we're getting taxed more and more, especially in California. Their taxes were on a whole nother level. And what they would do is they would essentially grab a person from a community, in this case the Jews, so they'd grab a Jew from this Jewish community and go, you're going to work for us and you're going to collect taxes on our behalf of all your neighbors. That's what Matthew was. And and here's the hard part about what tax collectors were doing 2,000 years ago, is these excessive taxes from Rome, what they would do is, let's say I'm going to tax Jonathan and his family. He comes up to my tax booth. Okay, I know Rome's taxing him 50%. Hey, the, uh, the tax this month is 70%. I pay Rome their 50, I keep the 20, and I get to live this wealthy, lavish lifestyle while my neighbors are increasingly getting poorer and poorer and poorer because I'm getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. It's borderline extortion. So you can imagine, like, dude, the Jews hated the tax collectors. It's like they sold their own people out. They were hated. They exploited people. They took advantage of people. They practiced a ton of greed. They sold out their own people. That's Matthew. So think about this. Jesus invites Matthew, the tax collector, all of his neighbors. He doesn't have friends. All of his neighbors borderline hate this guy, rightfully so. Jesus invites Matthew, the tax collector, to join him as a disciple but it's going to require something of Matthew. What was it? What's it going to require of Matthew? Did you catch it? It's going to require him to leave the tax booth. Come, follow me, join me. When I was in college, there was this like resurgence of poker do you guys remember when like the World Series of Poker like took over ESPN? It's like, I just want to watch the Lakers and it's just the World Series of Poker every night. <clears throat> so I was in college where there was this, this resurgence of like Texas Hold'em and all these big poker games, right? Someone's saying woo. Um, and so, sorry. And so as every college dude in America was like, okay, well, there's this resurgence of poker. We all have to play poker now. And I remember being in college and there would be these like frequent poker nights, right? And I remember one specifically where we're trying to put one together, the, you know, the, the, every group of friends always has one or two guys that spearhead most of the things. And so those guys are trying to spearhead a poker night. And one of our friends was like, ah, oh, dang it, I, I, gotta, I, I gotta work, I can't make it. He worked at a, at a local restaurant. And so we're like, okay, we'll be this guy down, but hopefully we can get a full group of guys to play. 
And so uh, we come together and, and we're getting ready, like we're divvying up chips and we're about to start the poker game when that guy walks in. And we're all like, dude, did you, did you get called out of work? Like, did, did they send you home? What, what? That's a, like, cool, there's a seat for you, great. Like, didn't expect to see you, you had to work. He goes, I quit my job. And we're like, what do you mean you, what do you, mean you quit your job? So like, yeah, my shift started an hour, like an hour and a half ago. He goes, I, I quit my job. So he starts to explain to us, like he told his boss off. He quit on the spot on a Friday night so he could come play poker with his friends. Um, he never went back. And he said, he goes, yeah, I quit my job. I wanted to play poker tonight. So I guess, I guess this poker night was more valuable to him than his paycheck moving forward. But that's the decision that he made. Matthew quits on the spot, but he didn't work for a restaurant. He worked for the Roman Empire. And he didn't just work for the Roman Empire. He collected taxes, money, on their behalf. Is anybody familiar with how much governing authorities like taxes? And how much money, them getting money matters to them. I suspect that the Romans weren't that much different than any other government in the history of the world. He didn't just work for a restaurant. He worked for the Roman Empire. He's collecting their taxes. I suspect that the, his commanding officer, which would have been in their, in their military, I suspect he wouldn't have been too happy with Matthew, especially if that line at the tax booth was long. I suspect this wouldn't... I suspect this would have been unsafe for Matthew. But Matthew encountered something more valuable, didn't he? He encountered something more valuable than safety. He encountered something more valuable than wealth. Who did he encounter, friends? Say his name. Oh, he saw Jesus. He encountered Jesus. Here's my next point for you. Joining Jesus it means leaving the tax booth behind. Listen, just statistically in this room, this is true. According to Barna and other studies and different things. Some of you are attempting to live as a disciple of Jesus, but you haven't walked away from the tax booth. You're, living, you're trying to live as a disciple of Jesus, which is awesome, Bravo, well done, but you haven't yet walked away from the tax booth, right? Maybe you're here on a Sunday or you're going to a Lord's Supper with your gospel communities, but you haven't given up certain behaviors or you haven't given up certain beliefs. We talk about this all the time. Your behaviors are determined by what you believe. What you believe will literally determine how you behave. Just give it some time. 
You haven't walked away from the tax booth. In other words, there's specific areas of your life that you know God doesn't approve of, but you're just not willing to walk away from the tax booth. It's unsafe. Or I gotta give up something that I like. What's your tax booth? And it changes from season to season, does it not? What's your tax booth? What are the behaviors and beliefs that Jesus is calling you out of? Come join me. Hear me. Maybe it's obvious to other people, like it was for Matthew. Everybody knew that guy's sin. The whole, his whole, like the, every neighbor he had was like, that guy's sketchy. It's obvious. Maybe for you, maybe it's obvious to other people like it was for Matthew, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's hidden. We can hide things from others, but we can't hide things from God. Listen, this is important. You cannot live as a disciple of Jesus while you're sitting at the tax booth. Because joining Jesus, it means leaving the tax booth behind. Okay, my next point, I gotta move quick. Um, My third point is this. Jesus dines with sinners. Jesus dines with sinners. Look back at verse 10. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners, those are the people that are obviously bad, the obviously bad ones, right? It's clear, everybody knows it. Tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, the obviously bad ones. We gotta understand the context of what a... 2,000 years ago, what it meant to, have, to share a meal together. To share a meal together now is it's a fairly, fairly intimate thing, you know? But back then, way, way, way more intimate. Let me read you a, a quote. Stuart Weber, he's, a, he's a, a theologian. He says this, quote, I think you guys have this one. Yeah, great. Eating together, 2,000 years ago, this is contextualizing it. Eating together was the deepest form of social intimacy, the deepest form of social intimacy, eating together. Normally, no sinner was welcome at a righteous man's table. And no righteous man would consider eating at a sinner's table. Jesus had no such misgivings. He displayed unconditional acceptance and impartiality by participating in this meal, end quote. Eating together was the deepest form of social intimacy. What this is basically getting at is that back in the day when this was taking place, you only ate with people you identified with. Do you know what it means to identify with someone? It's deep. It's profound. This is what uh, thesaurus.com says identify with means. It means to associate with, to empathize with, to feel for, like I feel for you, to support, to be an ally, and finally, this one gets me, to have a special connection with. So 
So I was thinking about it, I'm like, what, what's like the modern day version of this? Here's the best thing I can come up with. You post a selfie, or you take a selfie and you post it. You only post a selfie with people you identify with. Like you only post it so other people can see it to people you identify with, right? Either I have a special connection with this person or I desire to have a special connection with this person, right? Celebrity, y'all, get in here. Everybody look, I got the special connection with Bieber. Either you have a special connection with that person or you desire to have a special connection with that person or else you wouldn't post the selfie with that person. You with me? It's not the greatest example of it, but it's the closest thing I can think to to a modern day equivalent. You only post selfies with people you identify with. Dining together, it meant that you identified with those people at the table. You either already had a special connection or you desired to have a special connection. And the Pharisees, they witnessed this meal. Their, their village, their Jerusalem and the places around it, they were on top of each other, man. You saw everything that your neighbor was doing. They saw everything that you were The Pharisees, they see this meal happening. And they witness this meal and they question, what is, why? Verse 12. When Jesus heard this, he said, this is why. He said, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Um, last Sunday night, um, last Sunday night, I got in an argument with my wife. And it was one of those arguments that started kind of like mellow and not that big of a deal. And then it started to kind of escalate. And the next thing I knew, like the argument's not going well and I'm not kind of going like, whoa, how did, it, how did we get here? And then she said something that like really got my attention. She said this, she said, who has permission to speak into your life? And I was like, listen, I, I genuinely work hard at not being that kind of stereotypical, narcissistic, insulated leader that operates in unhealth and just keeps people at a distance so I can just maintain control. Like I actually genuinely work hard at that. And so in my mind, I'm getting defensive. I'm like, there's this person, there's this person, there's this person, there's this person, and I'm getting, I'm like, dude, there's several people. And you guess what she says? She goes, how about your wife? T-K-O. How about your wife? And I remember when she said it, the temptation to get defensive was still present. But the fear of the Lord was like, she's right because she's just spent the last 20 minutes trying to speak into my life and I've been resistant. And then she said this, she said, I love you, but I don't think you see it. 
And then she lovingly, yet firmly, like, started to describe to me, because I yielded. The scriptures talk about submission in marriage. Yes, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. It, It clearly says that. And then it literally says, submit to one another. So I yielded to my wife. She's she, she has the floor. I am speaking to this. The, 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 the shields are down because I trust her. I don't always trust her. But the Spirit convicted me in that moment that I needed to. And so she just began to describe to me these two areas of idolatry in my life. And when I say idolatry, I mean like false gods. Like I, the, a, Worship means to ascribe ultimate worth. So whenever, whenever we as people, when we ascribe ultimate worth to something that isn't our creator, isn't the lover of our soul, isn't our Lord, isn't our Savior, isn't Jesus, isn't the triune God of the universe, then, then what we've done is we've, we've latched onto an idol, which is a false God, which is inevitably going to let us down because it's not God. But we ascribe worth to it as though it is. And so she helps me see these two specific idols in my life that were, make, that were like actually I was worshiping. Comfort and control. And she was 100% accurate. Now listen, on the surface... None of it was scandalous. Some of you are uncomfortable. You're like, oh my God, the preacher, the pastor's talking about his sin. <laughs> like if that can't be a normal thing, what are we doing? Um, none of it was scandalous on the surface, guys. None of it. It wasn't like, none of it was tax collector stuff. None of it was obvious. It was more like the Pharisees in this passage. The Pharisees were different than the people that Jesus were dining with, weren't they? They were different because they didn't know they were sick. They didn't see it. And did you notice what Jesus tells these Pharisees to do? I'm running out of time. Uh, uh, verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. He gives, he literally, in love, he goes, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Do you know what he's doing there? You Bible nerds in the room know what he's doing. He's he's quoting Hosea chapter six, verse six. Let me me read this to you, right? This is Hosea, again, written uh, not in original Greek. It gets translated into Greek and then it gets translated into English. This is the original uh, Hosea 6, 6. This is God speaking, for I desire faithful love. That's what gets translated into mercy when Jesus quotes it. I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It speaks of the knowledge of God. That refers to intimacy, not information. Right? Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. We've talked about this a lot. Know, to know is this deep, intimate language. God's like, I desire the knowledge of God more than I desire you doing all these burnt offerings. It refers to intimacy, not just information, okay? What Jesus is telling these Pharisees here, friends, is that God cares more about what's going on inside of you than what's going on on the outside of you. In other words, God's like, I desire your heart more than I desire your hands. 
and so many of us, we're cool to give God some of our hands. We're cool to do some stuff for him. Ooh, yielding our heart, that's a whole nother thing. I desire your heart more than I desire your hands. Why? Why would God desire your heart more than he desires your hands? Aren't the things that you do matter? Yes, they do. But why would he want that? Here's why. Because what's going on in your heart determines what it is that you worship. What you actually ascribe the most worth to. Guys, did you know, you and I, we can do Christian stuff without worshiping Jesus. We can be in this room on a Sunday for a worship gathering where we come to literally deliver God praise and worship, ascribe ultimate worth to him. We can be here. We can do stuff without actually worshiping God. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you know what that's called? That's called religion. Jesus is not a fan of religion. He's a fan of intimacy. He's not a fan of religion. He's a fan of relationship. That's what he's after. He's after your heart. Because if he gets your heart, he's going to get your hands. Listen, my interaction with my wife last Sunday, it was really similar to the Pharisees' interaction with Jesus here. Right, the sin that Eb was trying to bring to my attention, it wasn't obvious. It was hidden deep inside, right? It was hidden even to me. I didn't see it, but somebody who loves me did. And she loved me enough to help me see it too. So that night, as you can imagine, I went to bed feeling fantastic, okay? No, I went to bed feeling that weight of like the, the healthy, humbling, like, oh, I'm actually not as impressive as I like to believe that I am. I, I, guys, I went to bed going like, I've been, just to be candid with you, I've been in a season where I want to get serious about eliminating sin in my life. Not just the big stuff that's obvious, but the, the, everything. I want to honor Jesus with my life because he's worth it. But I remember going to bed going like, dude, sin runs so deep in me. It's like infected me at a cellular level like I'm sick with sin and I'm not capable of curing myself. So I wake up the next morning, Monday mornings, we have our staff meeting. We, we always start our staff meeting in the prayer room. Give, we operate as priests unto the Lord for about an hour before we get into logistics stuff. So we're in the prayer room and I'm facilitating the time. Mark's leading us in praise. Staff's there with us. We're in the prayer room. And if you've been to the prayer room, you know we always want to have our time rooted in God's word. And so I really felt like God wanted to remind us of who he is. And so just really clearly the spirit was like highlighted a specific passage that he wanted us to be rooted in that morning. And hear me, it is a passage I have read so many times, okay? So many times, let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse four. Moses cut two stone tablets we're going to go late. Sorry, guys. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. And here's where I got stuck. I, I go to read verse five. 
audibly. I can read it with my mind. I can read it with my eyes, but I, I, I can't get the words out without totally losing it emotionally. Because I know what's coming. I, I know what's coming in these verses. And I'm sick with sin and I don't want to be. The Lord came down. I couldn't. I, I couldn't. It was like I it's, The Lord came down in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name. When we talk about the name, like we praise your name, God. Your, your name is glorious. It's not like just like something that you call someone. A name, biblically speaking, is someone's essence. It's, it's like who they are. Proclaimed his name, the Lord. Literally, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. He goes, I'm gonna share my name with you. I'm gonna share my essence with you. Here's who I am. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I'm trying to read this passage in the prayer room with the staff. I can't get it out. I'm about to lose it. Why? Because my soul was being reminded of who God is. That that he's compassionate. That, that, That he's gracious. That he's slow to anger with you. That he's abounding, like abounding, overflowing in faithful love and truth. And that he's forgiving to who? to people sick with sin. Like me, man. And just the grace of God came over me. And I just wept in the prayer room in the presence of God with the staff for an hour. It's beautiful, man. It's awesome. I was reminded in a really powerful way of who God is, of what he's really like, that he dines with sinners that he identifies with sinners, that he desires a special connection with people who know that they're sick with sin and need the doctor. And that was me, man. And not just that, it's me every day, but I felt it. Like I felt it. You know what I'm talking about? It became not just an idea, it became a reality in my soul. Here's my question for you this morning. Who do you identify with in this passage? Who do you identify with in this passage? Are you you sick with sin like the people that Jesus dined with? Or are you like the Pharisees and me who are blind to their sin? They can't see it. Listen, if you're sick with sin, I have absolutely fantastic news for you. The God of the universe, the the doctor from heaven, he identifies, not with them, he identifies with you. 
He identifies with you. He desires to have a special connection with you. He, de- he desires to provide you with the remedy that you need to be saved. He desires to credit his perfect life in your place to you, covering every single bad choice you've made. And not only did he come, he came down to live the perfect life, he willingly went to the cross, opened his veins to atone for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. Why? Because he desires a special connection with you, one that's based on mercy. That's what he desires. Do you know how much he loves you? Maybe you forgot, like I did. And maybe the Spirit wants to remind you this morning. Jesus dines with sinners. He identifies with sinners. He desires a special connection with sinners. All right, I'm gonna call the band up. And and actually, ministry team, will you come up with them too? I'll close with this. I love this passage, man. I love this passage. We doing all right? Thanks, Polly. You guys are so quiet. So quiet. Um, So, so Jesus, right? This Matthew's conversion moment. What a special moment for Matthew. What a profound moment for Matthew, right? Jesus, he sees Matthew. He knew that Matthew was a tax collector. He he knew all about Matthew's sins, like every single one of them, right? He knew that Matthew exploited people. He knew that Matthew took advantage of people. He knew that Matthew was greedy. He knew all these things about Matthew. He knew Matthew was a tax collector, but what he saw was a disciple. Can I just encourage you? Jesus knows your sin, but what he sees is a disciple. In his invitation to Matthew, join me. It's the same invitation to each one of us every single day we're alive. Join me. That tax booth. Walk away. Join me. Leave it behind. What's your tax booth? What what, what tax booth do you need to leave behind today, this morning? What what sin is holding you back from joining Jesus, from following Jesus, from actually being converted into a disciple? Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It means you're devoted. So maybe you're here and you're struggling with guilt and shame. Maybe you're like, yep, I've blown it in some, I've been blowing it in some significant ways recently. Maybe you're here, you're like, I just feel shame. I just feel guilt. The things that I've done, my past, it's too bad. Like, yeah, Jesus can forgive other people who like maybe tell white lies, but like I've done this or I did this this week or I did this this morning. Listen, if you're feeling guilt and shame, can I just encourage you? Jesus wants to dine with you, man. Jesus wants to dine with you. Come to him. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. 
Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here and you're, you're paying way more attention to the, the work of your hands than the condition of your heart. You're slipping into religion as though you can somehow earn. Hear me, if that's you. Whew. That's you. Jesus wants to dine with you too. to him. Receive his love. Receive his forgiveness. He desires to have a special connection with you. Let me pray for us. Spirit is, uh, is saying that some of you are like right now in this moment, you're wrestling with doubt. Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants to dine with you. He identifies with you. Holy Spirit, help us to receive the love and forgiveness of Jesus in a fresh way this morning. Every single one of us. Your gospel is fantastic news. You identify with sinners. You've gone to great lengths to communicate love and care. You've, you've given your life to deliver us from a way of life that is not so good for us and not so good for others. And your invitation to join you, it stands. Help us to do that. Help us to do it with freedom, with joy, knowing that we are forgiven, that we are loved. And we can now live in a place of, of being loved instead of trying to live out of a place of trying to acquire it. Show us the way, Holy Spirit. Bring freedom in this room through every single man, woman, and young person. We love you. Teach us. Amen. All right. You guys can stand with me if you're able. We got about 10 minutes left. Not enough time. But God can do a lot with a little. Two types of people in the room. Only two types. Actually, three types. Um, <clears throat> priests, patients, and people who are just passing. You're just, uh, whatever. I don't want to, I'm just going through the motions. Priests and patients. Priests responding to the love of God. Right? Delivering him praise because he's worthy. He's wonderful. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's gracious. Fill this room with praise. That means use your voice. Use your body. Okay? And then patience. People who need to receive. They need, they need to touch. They need Jesus to touch them. And he's going to do it through trusted men and women up here that are offering themselves to pray for you. Okay? You can come forward anytime. But let's fill this room with praise and let's, let's receive what God has for us. Come receive prayer. Come praise him. Love you guys very much. And then Herrick will be up to close us in eight minutes. <laughs> Love you guys.